You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Look, this stuff is just pretty nifty, okay? Jeez. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Alexandra Rowland. And I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. This is episode two, Terra Firma and the Firmament. Welcome to episode two. Wow, this is exciting. Uh, before we go on, though, I think we're going to take a minute to do a little bit of shameless self-promotion. Uh, I think Rowena has uh, something very nifty to tell us about, speaking of nifty things. <laughs> Niftiness. Yes, book two in the Unraveled Kingdom is out as of June 4th. So Frey is out in the world um, and available, and I'm very excited because now I get to start worrying about book three. Yay, Yay. edits! Yay. Awesome! <laughs> have you already drafted? Have you already drafted book three? Book three, I'm I'm doing I'm in revisions right now, so it's editing revision cool. time. But but you have a full draft because I think that always yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It has left my hands once already, so that's good. That's good. That's always like, nice. I also feel like book three is not as terrible as book two, because book two is always just an awful experience, right? <laughs> like, you know, it, it, this is why I'm scared, because it wasn't a horrible experience, so I'm, like, waiting oh. for, like, the axe to fall, like... Oh, shit. Well, See, oh, I don't know. I'm so it was actually glad. fun writing it, so I hope it's fun reading it, but it was fun writing it, so. Good. Well, I feel like if you had fun <laughs> writing it, it's probably going to be fun to read it, too. But I am glad that it has gone easily for you so far. See, I always found it the other way around because for me, the book twos were always like, okay, yeah, now I, you know, I know all this and it's just cooking. And the book threes, because I would like write the outlines for book two and three at the same time, and then the outline for book three was just useless after writing book two. That's <laughs> so, I to, so that I would always have to be like, oh, I have to totally redo this. Yeah. That's why I only write duologies. I mean, <laughs> uh, so there's I have a perfect a- solution. I have a small piece of news as well. Uh, if anyone of our listeners is going to be at ReaderCon this weekend, I will be there as well. Uh, please come up and say hello. This episode is going up like the Wednesday before the convention. So uh, I don't know if we will have any listeners by the time this episode goes up, but <laughs> fingers crossed. And uh, if you do listen to it, please come up and tell me. I will be extremely surprised. Uh, <laughs> you'll see my face do a, a weird and amusing thing. ReaderCon has remained on my to-do list, and I have not gotten the chance to do it. And I should. It's a good little con. Because, like, the hotel is, like, eight minutes from my sister's house. So, oh, nice. So I should do it. But I, it's hard for me to do conventions in the summer with traveling. But that's just me and my life. I hear you. I hear you. So uh, let's move on to uh, the episode. So we had a really cool uh, introduction and discussion for episode one on like where you start with this whole world building thing. Uh, And we have some exciting new uh, features to tell you about as we go forward. Uh, We've decided that probably the, the best way to talk about world building is to actually show you how we do world building. So we are going to be kind of introducing a fantasy world and building it right in front of your very eyes, dear listeners. Uh, and I'm pretty excited about it. I don't know. Whose idea was that? Was that, that was yours? My, that was mine. Yeah. That was my... Yeah, yeah I think that we, we can blame Marshall. Yeah. Blame me. It, <laughs> it, is it is my fault, yes. It will not be my responsibility to take care of the wiki. That's all I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> so now we're getting into uh, the good stuff. Uh, we're going to get pretty deep and detailed today because, of course, we're masochists for world building. But before we go on, we are going to be dropping a lot of technical terms, scientific jargon, and so forth. So um, probably the best way that you can learn about that is really just to skim some Wikipedia pages, uh, if there's anything you don't know, or just like hit us up on Twitter, and we will be more than happy to point you in the right direction. Who wants to start? Well, like, we need to just start yeah. with some basics, like, you know, does the Earth orbit the sun? Do, do we have, how much axial tilt does, does the, the world have? These, I mean, these are the sort of basic physical facts I always like to start with and then figure it out from there. I mean... Do you start, do you start with a, a solar system when you're world building? I, I, I tend to, or at least 
the basics about the world that it's going to be on, and then like yeah. the rest of the planets and moons and all that that comes in. But I like I like to get my cosmology in order first. Sure, I feel like. Like, with the solar system, this is a great opportunity to do more presuming versus choosing. Um, like, you don't actually need to, to sit down and say, well, does my, my planet orbit a sun? Like, okay, sure, probably. I mean, it probably orbits a sun. Um, <laughs> unless it's disk world, in which case maybe it doesn't. Maybe the sun orbits you and your world is a disk on the back of four elephants on the back of a giant turtle uh, floating through space. Uh, but yeah, like I think we're going to keep coming back to this, the choose versus presume thing. So choosing, does it orbit a sun? Choosing what sort of, does it have like a regular axial tilt? One, and I think we're going to bring up some exceptions to these rules. I already brought up Discworld, but uh, I think it's George R. R. Martin. Does he do the axial tilt that is irregular with Westeros? Or is it the orbit of the planet around the sun that's irregular? Well, I think it's not specifically clear in the yeah. text other than the seasons are really bizarre. Yeah. I don't think he sat down and did the math. No. But I think there are fans who sat down and did the math and figured out how it would the work. Way, the, how it would work. Like, I, if I understand cor- if correctly from what I read, the axial tilt is actually unstable. And so part of it is that it, it the planet moves. Yes. Yeah. On its, on its axis while it's rotating the sun. And maybe also its orbit is irregular. Like, there's, there's a lot of weird stuff happening. So, so it's, it's a wibbly-wobbly world. Right. <laughs> you know, I think, too, I've also read fan theories on that one that it's, it's magically related so that that one isn't even necessarily the cosmology, but that's something with particularly, like, the Night King or something like that was affecting mm. seasonal variation in some goofy way. So that adds another wrinkle into the whole mix of if you're going to have a world with magic in it, does that get right down to the very bones of how, you know, how seasons work, how your, your world is actually like put together. Yeah. And that's one of the great things about writing fantasy too, is that like, if there's something that just sort of sounds cool that you want to have happen, but there's, it's not scientific, it doesn't have to be, you can just say a wizard did it. Uh, and (laughs) Problem solved. Move on with your life. Now you have the cool thing and uh, also wizards, apparently. So, yeah, um, any more, like, what sort of other uh, options do we have for, like, choosing versus presuming within, like, the solar system of this world that we're building? And should we, should we like, start our fantasy world right now? Yes, sure. Cool. So, is it orbiting a star or is it something weird in space? You know, I'm, I'm comfortable with orbiting a star. I, I, feel, I feel like we're comfortable with that, and, unless we want something, something crazy. I think I am, too. I, I think unless the weird thing is sort of like the point you're going for, then you should presume the orbiting a star. Presume, yeah, yeah. Is it a yellow G-type star like ours? I, I think so. I think that that starts to get into a spot probably, that, yes. you know, if you go with something different from that, you start to raise a lot of other questions of plausibility that you then have to either answer or really trust mm-hmm. your reader and yourself to roll with it. So, so I am cool with a, a star like ours. And also, like, like, if you start doing stuff with the star, then that ripples down to literally everything else in the world. The plants, the animals, the sort of, like, life and civilization that evolves on this planet. So if you're wanting to write a fantasy novel about humans, uh, probably, like, some sort of similar story star to ours is a, is a good way to go. Um, is there just one star or are there more than one? I'm going to put in a bid for just one. And this is, I'm going to reveal okay. that my entire family are dorks. My husband's actually, he has his doctorate in astronomy and he did his under or his um, master's and PhD work on binary star systems. Ooh. So I got to like read all of this stuff. And what's actually really interesting is that they are, um, part of his work was figuring out, can the, could these support um, a planet that develops life? And they're super unstable. So they're constantly like transferring energy to each other mm-hmm. um, and having these outbursts of like angry energy, um, which isn't great. 
great for uh, developing stable life on a nearby planet. It yeah. tends to like, you know, at some point decide to roast it or something, if I'm understanding correctly. Yeah. So if we want nice human life forms who don't get roasted, we, we might want to avoid binary star systems unless we have like an amazingly stable one or magic binding angry energy back. I mean, I feel like there's actually kind of a lot of like really cool potential in a binary star system, especially if you tie like the energy outburst thing to magic, that could be super nifty. That could be cool. Um, I kind of want to do that. Like, that, let's. That could be cool. Like, I, I kind of, I don't want to just presume all of the normal choices for this. Like, I want like at least one thing to be kind of weird and and off, you know. So, shall we do two suns? Okay. Are they both? Yellow G-type stars, or is it like one yellow G-type and one K, one, is it, are K's reds? I think K's are reds. I, I, I mean, I remember the order because it's Oh, Be a Fine Girl, Kiss Me. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Pull, pulling that one out. <laughs> I know my mnemonics. On the other hand, now I'm having kind of a flashback to the conversations that Marshall Ryan Maraska and I have had about, like, how two moons affects the stuff. And that's already complicated enough. Maybe we'll do two moons instead of two suns, because that's just a lot of math, you know? Like, that's just a lot of math. It is. It is. We would have to bust out a lot of math for a trio of fantasy authors. That's just a lot. Okay. We'll just do it. We'll just do one sun. We'll maybe do two moons, because then we can talk about tides and tidal patterns and so forth. Cool. I like that. I like uh, that. Of course, then you and I are going to get known as, like, the two moons people, because, like, both our books already have to. Well, <laughs> yeah. We have... You can't do three moons, because that's too many. <laughs> it's one for each of us. <laughs> or well, okay, is actually, it? I have, dun, dun, let's, dun. We'll, we'll come back to, to moons in a second. We'll circle back yeah. to moons. We yeah. will. We'll come back um, to moons. Does the next question is, we have like a whole list of, of, question, of questions here, dear listeners, and we will uh, be linking to this in the show notes so that you can review it and ask yourself these questions about your own fantasy world. Uh, does this planet inhabit the Goldilocks zone? Uh, does either of you want to explain what the Goldilocks zone is first? The Goldilocks zone is the area, the distance from a star where liquid water is viable. Therefore, it becomes a viable place where life can evolve. Right. Now, there's other ways, like if you want to get really weird to like cheat these things, like you can be in a zone where, say, ammonium is liquid and therefore you have ammonium-based life and that could be really freaking cool but if you want to do humans or human-like things you gotta you gotta go with water and so it's got to be in that zone where yeah. water is liquid and m most of the place you know I got, and I have to say it's like this is a spot that I kind of get a little bit jealous of people who are writing sci-fi because you could have life evolving somewhere else and then going to the crazy planet that is not in the Goldilocks zone and you somehow like make it work through technology, but it's really hard to make life evolve in a place that is, is inhospitable. Yeah. I mean, you can write fantasy novels that begin with a couple thousand years ago, a spaceship crashed here and then they went to, yes. you know, that's possible. I have a couple friends specifically that I am thinking about right now, but I don't want to call them out by name because that's huge spoilers for their book series. But it, you can, you can. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I feel like, I feel like right now, um, like all of this stuff, these are really good, like I said, really good opportunities to choose. Um just like the normal option, because I think we do want this to be a fantasy world where humans live, possibly other things, but we'll get into that in a much later episode, um, much, much, much later. Uh, but I think sort of like generally human-shaped things, because we like reading books about people with human emotions, at least. We have a question here. How many other planets are in the system? Are any of them also in the Goldilocks zone? This is not necessarily a important question that we need to answer now. Uh, other planets do not affect the primary planet as much. Inter not certainly not like a moon would, right? So like we can change our minds about this later, or we can put a pin in this one and come back to it. Right. But we can. I mean, we can probably presume that there's a collection handful of of other planets in the solar system and leave it at that. And Unless they become plot relevant later, yeah. Right. Unless either of you have like strong feelings about planets. That's not a decision that yeah that needs to be made. 
right at this moment. I think we can we can we can put a pin on that and then think about that later, especially if we want a second world that then is also in the Goldilocks zone and then you have people magically teleporting between the two worlds and that's a whole thing. Yeah. Who knows? But <laughs> we don't have to get into that. We don't, we don't, we don't have to get into that just yet. Cause then, yes. cause then yes, that would be like a go. whole second. That'd be like season two is the second world. Yeah, for sure. I've already, I've already damned us. <laughs> <laughs> so along those lines, then what do we do? What do we presume or what do we choose in terms of rev- rotation and revolution? Um, what's, one year what's one day what does what can we do with that do we want to play with that to a degree or is that necessarily not a thing that again do we presume that a, a year is a year and a day is a day or close enough to it that it doesn't have a major effect on the story so i did not do my homework for this particular wikipedia page and let me just make sure that i've got the terms right let me make sure i remember them correctly rather rotation is the planet having a day and night cycle. And revolution is the planet having a cycle of seasons, AKA a year, right? Or did I get it backwards? No, you got it right. Cool, great. (laughs) I I have not paid any attention to those terms since like middle school, so yes. (laughs) Um, Well, again, like having a generally Earth-like decision here means that we are cutting ourselves some slack. We're not actually being that masochist here in these choices that we're currently making because everything we've chosen so far has been fairly uh, Earth-like other than that brief, brief uh, divergence into, oh, maybe it could have two stars. But do you guys have any uh, recommendations for books that have made choices other than these? Because I have a couple. Well, then share with us. (laughs) Yes, please. So... So one of my one of my favorite books that has a wildly different uh, world building choice here is J.Y. Yang's Tenseret series, uh, and on that planet, it's a, a fantasy setting and uh, it's a series of novellas, and they are fantastic. You should absolutely go read them. Uh, and in this fa- this uh, planet, the planet rotates very quickly. So in their twenty four hours, they have two day cycles and two night cycles. Uh, and that has affected some weird things with the culture. Um, alternatively, you can go to the other end of the spectrum and be like Lois McMaster Bujold with the Vorkosikan saga, uh, where she has a planet Barriar that has, I think it's like a 26 and a half hour day cycle, which is like just cheeky enough to be like, oh, it's a little bit weird. It's Earth-like, but only Earth-like rather than directly Earth, you know? They did the same thing on Star Trek Deep Space Nine where Bajor had a 26 hour day. So they always, you can just have a couple more hours oh, a yes. day. But I, <laughs> But I, I, one of the things I loved on that show was how they would just slip that in little things like, we need this solved in 48 hours. Instead, they'd say, we need this solved in 52 hours. Those just little mm. dialogue tweaks that, that I always appreciated because they were delightfully geeky about the fact that the planet they were around had a 26-hour day. That's really interesting because it also makes you think about the sort of assumptions that we have in language. Like, when you say 48 hours, that's kind of a set phrase that we're used to hearing um, that means two days and so with if you're doing this kind of like really fundamental changing to your world building you really have to pay attention to how the world around us seeps into the sort of language that we're using and it can get pretty tricky and I think that's another like whole episode all on its own right right (laughs) yeah and, and probably something else that's another whole episode down the line is how do you understand time and how do you split up time and if you have a day that is 30 hours long, our hours instead of 24 hours, it's just, it's longer. Mm-hmm. Do we still measure it in 60 minute hours? Or are we breaking things up in different ways? Or are we understanding how time is passing in different ways? Um, so there's kind of that too, like when it actually kind of gets out there on how it's experienced by the characters, how is it feeling different? How is it actually playing out differently? Yeah. And the downside to choosing something that is not Earth-like is that to make it at all relevant or interesting or to make the reader aware of it, you then have to explain it to the reader. And a lot of the times, you know, you can get kind of bogged down in, like, explaining your world building too much, where really, like, is it plot relevant that 
the day is 30 hours long instead of 24 hours long? How do you communicate that to the reader? How do you um, bring that up without overburdening them with information? What is the narrative value of, of yeah. making a choice like that without without having it necessarily mean something? Like, if you're just doing it for the sake of, I'm doing something different, then are you, like, are you really giving yourself something or are you just burdening yourself with something to explain to the reader that doesn't advance whatever you're trying to do? Right. Right, and burdening the reader with something that's not zero entry, that has to have some kind of, like, got to get some uptake here to actually figure out what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, with the Tensorate series, I think that it was very much a choice that was worth it because it was communicated very well in a very like sleek sort of way um and one of the ways that you can do this is just by making it uh, mediocre to the characters who are experiencing it so they mention offhand like oh yes during the second night cycle I had a nap um and then the reader stops and goes second night cycle what does that mean um and you can you can give it to the the reader in sort of dribs and drabs that way rather than just like well in this world because they have two night cycles and two day cycles blah 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 um so yeah <laughs> I definitely once again I, I highly recommend the tensorate series for uh a really really good depiction of how to do this kind of like really fundamental solar system scale uh world building in a different way uh but let's move on how do we feel about a magnetic field? I mean, can we get away without one? Or if we don't have one, are we messing with things like atmosphere and um, vital things like breathing? Yeah, um, I think, isn't it true that like one of the reasons why Mars does not have a substantial atmosphere is because it does not have a magnetic field? Is that right? I believe that's correct, yes. Yeah. With, without yeah. the magnetic field to protect it from solar winds, it, blew, it basically blew the atmosphere away. But Right. Like, you can, that's a thing where you can say, like, do we cheat it with, instead of a magnetic field, there's, like, a magical field or something like that that, that, that fulfills a similar purpose. But, like, again, you should do that if there's a specific choice you're making about this is why it's magical instead of magnetic or something like that. Yeah. I think that I'm going to pitch the decision that it does have a magnetic field for the purposes of I really like compasses, uh, and I would like us to have a compass later on in, in this world building. Compasses are great. Which is also, I believe, a, a valid uh, reason to, to choose things like this. Like, oh, I'm going to need this tool later on, so I'm going to have to backtrack and make this other thing true. Absolutely. <laughs> let's, go, let's go back to talking about the moons, because uh, Marshall Ryan Maresca and I are both huge fans of moons. Uh, we are the, the two moons dudes. <laughs> I don't know. We'll come up with a better name, a better cool name for people who write books with two moons some other day. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is we <laughs> both explicitly have two moons in our text. And yeah, I mean, and on at least some of my covers, the two moons show up. And, mm. and in that really cool fan art that you got also has two moons. Yes. Was... <laughs> yes. I got one piece of excellent actually this this fan artist has drawn several things from my book so far uh but it was a birthday present that uh, one of my friends commissioned for me and yes it has both both of the the two moons in it and I was extremely excited about it um I think I think we actually here's here's the thing how about we have two moons that are actual moons and then we have one moon which is like some magic bullshit right like it could be a bubble made of like sort of like a death star but like hollow so it looks like a moon but it's not actually a moon it doesn't have any uh mass or not significant amounts of mass anyway Minimal uh, mass. and it what <laughs> so it won't affect the, the tides anymore so it won't affect the tides exactly alternatively if you don't like the idea of a spherical one it could be just a giant mirror in space uh, so that could be, it would appear in the sky as always being quote unquote full rather than having phases. If it's a sphere, then it's going to have phases. If it's just like a flat disc in space for some reason, then it's going to appear full all the time. Or what if it's something shattered? Ooh, it could be shattered too. I like that one. So how about a sphere, but something crashed into it so that it looks like a giant bite has been taken out of the side? Yeah. All right, let's do that. So it's like, it's like Cookie Monster's Cookie Moon. Yeah. This is rad. Cool. So 
two literal moons, one quote unquote moon. We'll come back to what it is at a later date. Um, since tides are caused by the moon, um, the moon also regulates uh, tectonic activity. That is good. We want that to be to be well regulated and, and stable. Otherwise, some fifth season kind of bullshit. But but all these choices in terms of in terms of now we have you know two regular moons and one mm-hmm. sort of broken destroyed moon like thing like that's going to affect later down the line a lot of the a lot of the mythology a lot of how people think about how the world works because they're going to have this broken thing in the sky so that's probably going to factor into into their lives and their societies and so so does everything else that we stick in the sky if we had done more than one sun that would have a profound effect on the psyches of the people in there um in dot points, I mention Isaac Asimov's Nightfall, which is a story about a world that has six suns. Mm. And so it never has night, except for it has a moon that they don't know about because since it's always light, they, don't, they never see it. But there's a configuration <laughs> of the six stars and the one moon so that once every 2,000 years, the moon, there's only one star in the sky and the moon blocks it so they have night and they freak out. That's pretty fucking cool. So, so like their society just has this 2000 year cycle of everybody losing their damn minds. Do you have in your books, do you have any other like notable astronomical things in the sky besides moons? I haven't played too much with like comets and such. That's actually in my outline for the book. One of the books I'm going to be writing next year. Um, is going to have a comet as at least part hmm. of what's going on, and I. Me too. Wow, <laughs> and <laughs> I do do like some plot point stuff with the planets, and I the moons were actually a plot point. I did a thing in Thorn of Denton Hill, where the thing I did with the moon is actually physically impossible, and I was just like, and I wrote then in Alchemy of Chaos, sort of like an explanation of like, no, I know this is physically impossible, but. Maybe there's something weird magic happening here, but I know mm. that this is physically impossible. And the whole year between Thorn coming out and Alchemy coming out, I was like, somebody is going to call me on my orbital mechanics bullshit here. But nobody did. And I was like, okay, good. Because <laughs> oh. <laughs> I got the second book out before anybody yelled at me. <laughs> on the other hand, that means that like it's evidence that nobody cares about your orbital mechanics <laughs> except you, which is extremely depressing. <laughs> Uh, Maybe it just means that they, they trusted you to begin with, you know, like right. <laughs> they yeah. cared so deeply that they trusted that you had built a world where it made sense. One of my favorite <laughs> things uh, that I have done with the, the worlds of a conspiracy of truths and a choir of lies is that there is a neighboring galaxy in the sky. Um, this has been causing me some trouble because the word galaxy seems offensively modern. And so I haven't actually been able to bring myself to use the word galaxy in the actual text. I just have to like keep dropping hints about what it is, like what shape it is and how cultures interpret it. And, um, like the various names that different people have for it, like the mirror of heaven or, uh, the eye of Shugwa or the whirlpool or the, the woman's clay, clay pot, all sorts of things. And it's, it's kind of, I think I've had a couple people misunderstand what it is, but... Because you're dancing around the word galaxy and thus not... Because I'm dancing around the word galaxy, but like, it just seems too modern. Like, it doesn't seem like a word that's appropriate for a fantasy setting, even though I think they were using it in as far back as ancient Greece. So technically, I should be able to get away with it. That, yeah, that's a bit of research. I mean... I don't know off the top of my head, like, when did they recognize what the Andromeda galaxy was? I don't know. Yeah. Um, What else is is visible in our fantasy world's sky? I think it's a good question of, is anything visible? Um, Mm. Because any kind of, like, minor change to the atmosphere and you you don't see through it. Yeah, that's true. So I think it's, you know, it's kind of a remarkable thing that we take for granted that we can see the night sky and our stars. Um, So... That's a choice. Yeah, it could be surrounded by by dark matter or like any kind of cloud of a nebula that would block out the light of of distant stars. Yeah, definitely. Not that we ne- not that we necessarily want to do that, but you know, if we right if we ever want to have you know mythology surrounding constellations or any kind of navigation relying on the stars, though we will have compasses. Yes, we've established that. So we have 
some navigation down. But yeah. Marshall, Ryan, Mariska, do you have opinions on this? Because I could go either way. I, I, I would like to see to, for stars to be visible. I okay. mean, that, that would be that would be my that would be my the choice I would lean to. Is is it is it possible to have a thing kind of like the nightfall situation where we have a reason that you don't see the night sky all the time, but sometimes you do and this is an event to actually see? I was going to suggest sort of a compromise between these two things, which is that we kind of kind of have like an inverse Milky Way where there's like a huge streak of the sky where there are just no stars whatsoever that is like blocked out by some dark cloud in space, but that might be like too subtle for, for what we're going for. Or it could be that for whatever dark clouds, like half the year, there's no, there's no other stars other than the other planets in, in the solar system. But when you mm. get to the summer months, then you see all the stars. I really like that. Yeah. Okay, so let's assume that there is, for some reason like a cloud of dust or something in one part of the the planet's rotation. And so like it enters this cloud of dust and it blocks out the light from the the distant stars, but it does it's not enough to block out the light from the sun or from the moons. Right? Right. So one thing we could also think about with that, we we know we have um a magnetic field. What if you had a really strong aurora borealis that was actually so strong during the <gasps> winter? on your winter that it was blocking out. And I don't know if that completely screws up everything else, but that would be kind of cool. I love that. No, I love Aurora Borealises. Let's do that. Cool. So no stars, but Aurora Borealis. And then is that in summer or winter? In winter. I think winter. Let's right? make that, let's make that in winter. Yeah. And then summer, summer, you get the stars. It's clear. And you get the well, stars. actually, hold on. We are doing a thing that fantasy authors often do, which is that we are assuming Northern hemisphere. Yes, this is true. That's true. That's true. Yeah, because we all live well, in the but it would be hemisphere. It would still be the aurora. It's the, uh, what is the term of the southern? Aurora Australialis? Australia. Yes, right. thank you. So, so you get the magnetic field special beautiful lights in your winter, and you get stars in your yeah. summer. So, so, right. So, like, in northern hemisphere winter, southern hemisphere summer, you get the lights but no stars. Yeah. And then... In the northern hemisphere su- summer, southern hemisphere winter, you get lots of stars, no aurora. Yeah. Or at least lesser aurora. Cool. That's fantastic. Love that. Um, do we want to take a couple minutes and like brainstorm any constellations, or shall we leave that for later when we're doing like more cultural kind of world building stuff? I think that can hold off till to, to more cultural stuff. Okay. I think so. Okay, so. What about what's on the actual planet? Like, do we, what, what, what choices do we want to make with that of how, how much land and ocean and ice and such there is? I think I'm happy with making another Earth-like choice here where we have a planet that's roughly 70% water. Um, although, shout out to Ursula, Gwyn, Ursula Le Guin's uh, Earth Sea Trilogy, which had like lots and lots of water and relatively small land masses, and that was pretty cool. Um, I like large continents because I am a fan of more political kind of stories and when you and like empires and vast holdings of land and people interacting with each other and borders and and so forth um so i'm in favor of like continent-sized land masses but i could be argued away from that if no i'm i'm definitely for that too i think it i think it looks cooler yeah though i like continent-sized land masses and also like big island chains like i like to have oh yeah love an archipelago yeah love an archipelago (laughs) (laughs) Well, and kind of looking ahead, um, having big continents gives you the opportunity to have um, countries that have multiple kinds of environments within mm-hmm. them that you can have one country that has the desert region and the mountainous region. And if you only have teeny tiny little islands, then you don't quite have that opportunity That's to true. play. You have, other, you have other opportunities, but you don't have that opportunity. That's very true. Um, yeah, I like, the, I like the having multiple biomes in it. 
you know, and one thing too, that if we've decided that our ocean to land mass balance is going to look fairly similar to earth, we understand already how the weather is going to work to some degree because the ocean has a huge impact yes. on how our global scale climate functions because those currents are moving and they're moving around heat and they're creating wind and they're producing those weather patterns that we know and love um, and can work with. One of the happiest five hours of my life was uh, when I was making the original map uh, for my personal fantasy world for Conspiracy Inquire. Uh, and I went on a Wikipedia vendor uh, to read all about ocean currents and uh, uh, the patterns and uh, wind, prevailing wind direction and, and so forth. Uh, and that was just like a load of nerd fun. <laughs> well, have you heard the, the rubber ducky story? Uh, possibly. That there was a container, a, sh a shipment container of rubber duckies oh, yeah. coming from China to the U.S. and they like went overboard and so there were these like thousands of rubber duckies and they found them like all over the world. Like seven years later, one washes up in like Scotland or Norway or something. So these like rubber duckies, I mean, it's kind of sad that we're littering the ocean yeah. with our rubber ducky trash, but it was a really interesting illustration of how those currents are moving all over the globe. Yeah, yeah. Now that you mention it, I, I do remember hearing about it. It is fascinating, um, but it, as you say, kind of, kind of sad. So on our land masses that we've decided that we have, do we have mountain ranges? Do we have tectonic activity that's raised up mountain ranges? What kind of features do we have in that regard? Well, I like to have I like to have as much of a kind of diversity of biomes as possible, um, because I think it's neat, and I think that a world that is all kind of samey in terms of its uh, landscape is not the most interesting thing. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I I mean, you you want your your mountains and then your mountains to create deserts and create wetlands and create you know through all that. Do all sorts of neat, weird, fun stuff with all your different, all your different possible biomes, and see, yeah. and see what sort of stories can then evolve from, from, just from having that. Yeah, and it comes back to something that we were, I think we touched on briefly in the last episode, which was how much human culture interacts with our environment, um, and like I really like writing big, lush worlds with a huge variety of different cultures, and so you want to have. Um, sort of different canvases for them to uh, develop in. And it's fun, too, that once you get to the point of dividing up countries and or whatever you have, if you don't have countries, you just have people living in places, those mountains, those rivers end up being natural boundaries or landmarks or borders um, between people and between what they understand and maybe what they don't know about yet. So I think at this point, um, like we have a bunch of really amazing dot points here about uh, landscapes and things, but we might want to jump ahead to map making um, and talk about like how we make a map and then like retroactively fit the biomes and the the uh, land masses and things into what we are we're designing, right? Yeah, because you don't you don't build a a continent saying, well, I guess you could. There's no rules here. Um, this is this is a madhouse. This no, is chaos. No, you have to build a continent the right way. <laughs> um, at least the way that that I do it. So I have this uh, this method, which I call the rice method, which is that I get a large piece of paper by going to my local newspaper uh, building and saying, "Do you have the end of a newsprint roll?" And then they usually sell me one for five dollars, and that lasts several years. Um, and then you get a big piece of paper uh, and you roll out uh, maybe a yard of it and you put it on your dining room table and then you get a bowl of rice and you start putting the rice on the paper and poking it around until it's vaguely in a continent shape. And this is great because it gives you these lovely, fiddly, very natural looking coastlines. Uh, and it's very easy to edit without erasing. Um, it's sort of like playing with, with Play-Doh uh, except on a two-dimensional surface. So that can, I mean, that sounds fascinating. I, I know, uh, at least for me, if I spread out a huge piece of paper and rice on the dining room table. It's going to be all over your house. My, people in my house might be cross with me. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. I was like, my cats are going to let that last like two minutes tops. 
That's very fair. I, I, I've dug around for, for a few different tools that like essentially let you do sort of the same sort of thing of getting sort of random but natural looking. Because I've noticed whenever I've tried to just like, I'm just going to draw a continent by hand, it always looks, it looks, it always looks fake to me. Yeah, same. Yeah, that's why I use the rice is because it, it's the <laughs> only way that I can make it look even vaguely natural. I mean, the only time that it didn't do that is what I did way back with the world map that for, for Meridane is like actually hand drew on paper like a proto-continent, then cut that up. This was in 1993. <laughs> so this was before we had a lot of oh, you know, the technological advantages we have now. And then physically cut that up and like slid it apart and slammed it back together and then sketched from that by hand and then like went to Kinko's to get that scanned because nobody had a scanner <laughs> of their own in 1993. <laughs> Not in 1993, I mean, certainly. But um, now there's tons of fun little tools. I have a bunch of links for things that will create world maps randomly and they usually look pretty neat, although I'm never particularly satisfied with any singular one of them. So what I tend to do with these when I play with these is I will do a random thing and then like just take one continent off it and you know copy and paste that into a into a larger thing and do that a few times till I have a few continents on one map. And then that usually looks pretty cool. Then there's another trick I have to then take that information and I have a link to how to do this also. Check the episode description, dear listeners. <laughs> to then take that and do fiddly bits with the coastline in like five minutes. So it's like you don't have to go through and do it by hand because that way lies madness. Yeah. Um, so this then creates all these sorts of neat little coastline inlets and outlets and islands and such that it's just gorgeous. And so I have a gorgeous looking world map in like 20 minutes and I love it. Side note, when when either of you are talking about lovely fiddly coastlines, do you suddenly have a flashback to uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the, the Galaxy and Slidey Bartfest and how he loves his fiddly little coastlines and his beautiful fjords and so forth? Because <laughs> literally every time, like my, uh, the, the map, the world map that I have for Conspiracy and, uh, and Choir uh, is probably the coastlines are more fiddly than is actually... Uh, realistic, but they're all going to be fiddly uh, because it's an extremely, extremely subtle reference to Hitchhiker's Guide. <laughs> Is anyone with me on this, or am I just a weirdo? I, now that you say it, now that you say it, I'm there. <laughs> I am totally with you on this. That was Great. exactly what I was... <laughs> the original world builder. <laughs> exactly what I was thinking when I was doing the fiddly <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yes. Uh, Rowena, what uh, methods do you use? I think that you had a, a really beautiful world map in the front of your book. I did. And it's kind of interesting because I had little sketches that were just for me mm -hmm. um, in terms of actually getting the world down. And it, they were not pretty. Um, and when we actually got around to the idea of, well, we want a map for the book, the idea was we want it to look like an embroidered tapestry. Yeah. So the sketches that I produced for that were more focused on how do we translate this into a particular aesthetic and less how do I make this have the things like fiddly coastlines and etc. Mm -hmm. that we might have in a more realistic map. So um, they did a beautiful job with that. It looks, I think it looks a lot like a tapestry or embroidery, which is kind of the idea to go with the theme of the book. Um, so that's something too, to kind of think about in terms of creating maps, that there's functionality of a map, but then there's yes. also purpose for a map. And I think that cultures have had a lot of different purposes for maps. Oh, yes. And I am deeply geeky about this. This is actually a thing that I have strong opinions about in, in fantasy novels, <laughs> is that you open up a fantasy novel and you immediately assume that the world map in the front of the book is, one, accurate, and two it looks like the sort of map that you are familiar with, which means that it looks like a map that was uh, taken by satellite imagery rather than drawn by human people. Uh, and you compare this to the maps that were drawn of our world in like the, the 17th century, where you can see that the continents are distorted, uh, sometimes intentionally. Uh, there is a particular genre of maps um, I forget what the actual technical term is, um, but it drastically warps the shape of all the continents because the shape was not 
the purpose of the map. The shape was not relevant to the use for the map. Um, and these maps put Jerusalem at the center of the world. Are they called like trefoil maps or something like that? Um, they show pretty much just Europe, Asia, and Africa uh, with Jerusalem marked right at the center. And they're extremely cool. Um, on the other hand, uh, we can't just assume that the old maps that they had were always distorted and inaccurate because there are some beautifully accurate maps of particular coastlines. Uh, and these are called portolan charts. And they're specifically made for uh, ship captains, people who are going to be interacting with the coastline uh, and who need to know what the features are so that they can identify where they are. You get um, amazing maps like that, too, in kind of early exploration period of rivers. Yeah. And um, that the rivers are extremely accurate, and then everything else just kind of, like, blarps out. Yep. Because they had no idea it was actually there, but the rivers are, like, all there. And it's kind of interesting because when you look at ones of the, of, um, the United States, what becomes the United States, you can kind of start to see where states are mm -hmm. because they're, they're river borders, but they, they weren't then. They were just rivers in a blob. Yes. So the idea of what is the purpose of a map and, and what is given detail because it's important is um, kind of an interesting question in terms of the map building oh, for in sure. our own worlds. For sure. Um, I mean, and I think it's also uh, important to think about the function that this map is going to serve because um, we have this assumption in Western culture that a map is an image on paper of the land, which is kind of depicted as accurately as possible, but not all maps are in are images. Um, I know of um, one thing I have read a long time ago, and I do not have a source, uh, but hopefully our, our scribes can, can find a, a source for us, fingers crossed, um, which describes the uh, Inuit tribes of uh, Northern Canada and how they make maps by just making knots in a string and depending on what kind of knot so you're like you're following down the coastline you're going south along the coastline and so you're just keeping track of where you are by matching up the kind of knot that is in the string to the kind of landmark that you're passing by the shore or the an island or a peninsula uh or whatever so that's kind of fascinating and cool too uh, and then there are the medieval maps, which show rather than distances between two, for example, cities, they t uh, talk instead about travel times between those two cities. Like it will take you two days to go from uh, London to this other town, which again reflects the sort of use that was being made of the maps because no one cares about distance. Like Distance is not something that's going to be relevant to you. You want to know like how long it's going to take you to get there so you know how to plan your journey, how much food you need to pack, etc. And even still, when you're driving somewhere, nobody goes like, how many miles is it? They go, how far away is it? It's about five hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, or at least they do that in the South a lot. Um, like, I have, I have been in other places where they say, like, oh, yeah, it's about five miles away. And I, who grew up in Florida, am like, this is meaningless to me. <laughs> like, you need to tell me the distance in hours. But, so, for the purposes of this, I think, at least at this level, we still want just a more topographically accurate sort of map. Yeah. Because things that are, things that are more culturally based, those are decisions that, I mean, more maps can then exist that reflects the cultures we come up with, of course. Um, but I think at this stage, we should, we should focus more on, on the, the, the raw physicality of the world and use that as, as the stepping stone to figure out the other elements. No, yeah, I agree. Like having a very like accurate and scientific map for our purposes means that we can then like take whichever part we need and then distort it based on like the, the cultural expectations or the, the uh, plot requirements as, as needed. So we are uh, running close to the end of the episode. Just as sort of a wrap up, do you guys have any uh, resources for global level world building that you can recommend or any other like books or articles or so forth? Anything else that you're particular particularly fond of that you want to give a shout out to? So one website that's kind of fun um, is the Adler Planetarium in Chicago has a 
um, really fun kind of educational section on their website that they have just like fun facts, but then they kind of delve into why they work. So it'll be, you know, fun fact, this planet rains glass, but then it tells you why that works. So you can kind of get into the mechanics and the physics of how this stuff operates if you want to play with that. And another fun thing that they do is they have a great FAQ, but if you have a question that you really cannot figure out is you can actually email or call and leave a voicemail for an astronomer and they will get back to you. Really? So, because I have needed this at certain points <laughs> in my life, and I have been like, "Why don't I know any astronomers?" This is actually dangerous. They're going to be so, like, in two weeks, they're going to be so annoyed with me. They're going to block my calls. <laughs> they're going to shut it down. It's our fault. Yeah. Sorry. Yikes. <laughs> and in fact, just as a general, um, if you have a local university, often their astronomy departments will do the same thing. So. Yeah. I mean, that must be kind of, like, fun and flattering, right? Is to, like, have a writer come up to you and knock on your office door and be like, hey, do you want to talk about something really neat and fun instead of grading student papers? And they're like, thank God someone actually cares. Yes, I would love to. (laughs) And you can do all your world building that way. You start at the astronomy department, then you go to the geology department. Exactly. Then you go to the biology department. Just bop around. Just, like, bring a basket of muffins with you. (laughs) Academics are very hungry people. It's true. It's a brilliant plan. This was a lot of science to pack into one hour, wasn't it? Even if we did presume a lot of Earth-like options, I think that's okay. Your world needs to be coherent and accessible to your reader, after all. And our world is actually amazingly nifty and full of weird shit. Truth is stranger than fiction, etc. Anyway, our next episode goes up on July 24th, and we'll be narrowing the scope from solar systems to your local neighborhood uh, by continuing the discussion of the landscape with a focus on biomes, flora, and fauna. Shit's gonna start getting weird. Are we going to build in some dragons? Does every living thing on this world photosynthesize? Are there otters the size of horses and cats the size of houses? We're gonna find out. We really hope you liked this episode. Uh, If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review somewhere. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, uh, there's a number of ways to contact us. We are on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. Here's your cool fact of the day. The first telescope was invented by Hans Lippershey in the Netherlands. He tried to patent it in the year 1608.